0: So uh, we're back with our sixth episode of the Utility Strategy Podcast, the first infrastructure podcast to shine a light on what we love to call utility strategy. Uh, as we all know, buried utilities pose an enormous risk to any infrastructure project, uh, often causing schedule overruns, unexpected costs, and uh, of course, utility strikes. Uh, but with the right utility strategy, we're able to mitigate that risk and streamline our project. And that's what our podcast is all about. Uh, sharing and gaining all kinds of insights that will enable just that. Helping project managers, utility coordinators, estimators, mappers, planners, designers, engineers, and any other stakeholders uh, overcome the challenges- of owners. Oh, Project owners, of Project yeah. owners. Project owners as well. Uh, overcome the buried utilities in our right of way. Um, to help us through just that, uh, we have here with us today, uh, Jeff Zeiss, who's going to talk to us about our industry's biggest problems and what we can do to solve them. Uh, so a bit about Jeff, uh, you probably know him from uh, his blog Between the Polls, uh, where he tracks the contribution of geospatial technology to the digitalization of the construction and energy industries. Uh, Jeff focus, focus area is, uh, locating, mapping, and sharing information about underground utility infrastructure. Uh, he has been an advisor to a number of underground mapping initiatives, including, uh, our company, 4M Analytics, uh, also Singapore uh, Digital Underground, uh, Minnesota Underground Utility Mapping Project, and the National Underground Asset Register in the UK um you should know that in uh, 2014 in recognition of his efforts to increase the awareness of geospatial data and technologies uh, in the construction and uh, utility sectors uh, jeff received uh, the geospatial ambassador award at geospatial world forum in geneva switzerland um so uh jeff let's uh, let's get started how are you doing today
1: just wonderful fantastic good uh,
0: i got to start by uh, by asking what's the problem what are we up against let's kind of put it out there
1: so let me let me uh, let me put this in context at a macro level to start with do that. if you look at the us con- us economy underground infrastructure probably represents a drag of somewhere between 33 billion and 90 billion dollars on the U.S. economy. Now, wow. those numbers, I believe, are probably an underestimate, but um, there is good uh, factual support for those numbers that I just gave you. Um, if you start looking at the other impacts of, of, of underground infrastructure, you already mentioned the fact that a lot of projects are delayed. There's budget overruns. I mean, it's the hu- According to the Federal Highway Administration in the United States, it is the biggest source of risk on civil engineering projects, not knowing where things are underground. Um, The second thing is that this is not only an economic problem, but it also affects people's health, the health of workers, the health of the public. And the statistics indicate that something over 20 years, you're probably seeing on the order of hundreds of deaths and thousands of injuries. And it means any worker who's on a site and is putting a shovel in the ground is at risk. Now, and this risk is actually higher than getting on an airplane, to be Jeff, honest. I'm gonna ask you a question, now, sorry. Do
2: you think this is yeah. highlighted by COVID or the actual strain on the infrastructure? Because the-
1: I think COVID probably reduced the incidence of, 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 of uh, injuries to public because there's just a lot less traffic. You know, There was a lot less traffic. And in fact, in some jurisdictions, people went out and had projects specifically to look for underground infrastructure because they so less traffic. And the reality is that if you go out with a ground penetrating radar or an electromagnetic device to try to find things underground, you're often walking in heavy traffic. So this is a very risky profession. So, you know, this, this represents a serious risk to workers. It's also also represents a, a you know, risk to, to the public. But if you go out there in the morning and you say, I'm going to dig a hole in the ground on a construction project, you have a significant risk of being electrocuted, blown up in a gas explosion or other other things.
2: Wow. So I, I'm going to ask you a question uh, in terms of the tax on the infrastructure, in terms of taxing the infrastructure, I thought that COVID really showed what our lag is in terms of the infrastructure and how, how taxed our current infrastructure is in terms of uh, its capability to to hang on and capability to really keep up with our
1: current lives oh yeah so if you're talking about the capacity or the you know the um, maintenance and so on i mean you look at the ase scorecard for example which is it's usually d or c minus or something and and that scorecard applies to all of our infrastructure. The reason Biden has introduced this huge you know, $1.2 $2 trillion infrastructure spending bill in the U.S. Mm-hmm. is that you know, our, our infrastructure is falling apart uh, in North America, and we've got to spend a lot of money on it. Now, the interesting thing about this, this, this leads to a little bit of a macro perspective, macroeconomic perspective on what is going on with infrastructure. In the past, most infrastructure, roads, highways, bridges, schools, and so on, was built by government. And they were looking for a social return. So they invested $100 billion in a new highway or something like that. That meant that somebody could get the Manitoba quicker, you know, whatever. The reality is that since about 2003, there has been a lot of private investment going into infrastructure, um, coming from sovereign wealth funds, pension plans, um, insurance companies there's something like 60 or 70 trillion dollars out there and in the past not not much of that went to infrastructure but since 2003 the amount going to infrastructure has been growing now the big difference between a government investing in infrastructure and private money going into infrastructure is that governments want a social return private money wants a financial return Mm -hmm. And when you want a financial return, the way you do that, especially in the construction industry where productivity has been stagnant for 50 years. If you look at aircraft manufacturing, automobile manufacturing, productivity has more than doubled over that period of time. If you look at, if you look at, uh, if you look at construction in U.S., U.K., Germany, Japan, South Korea, all the world's advanced economies, it has been stagnant. In the U.S., has actually declined. Productivity has gotten worse in construction. Okay. So we've got this problem where we've got private money going into infrastructure, which means construction. Um, we've got a stagnant productivity problem in construction. The result is a lot of money is going to go into technology to improve productivity. And in the United States, the amount of money going into construction startups is phenomenal. It exceeds any other sector. Wow. No. And, you know, I mean, we see examples in underground stuff. I mean, you guys for I mean, you look at the number of small startups that are able to raise venture capital funding. Now, it's incredible how much is going on in construction. So on a macro level, that's what's really driving this. It. It's basically, you know, construction is 10% of the world's economy. right? This is a big thing. And if it continues the cost to build things as much as it has in the past, we are never going to be able to get our our infrastructure. you know, getting back to your original point over here, we're never going to be able to get our infrastructure up to where or afford to get it up to where we, yeah. we need it to be. So construction to me, construction productivity is the big macro. and the to me, the lowest hanging fruit on addressing this problem of productivity in construction is underground infrastructure everybody knows it's a problem we know the magnitude of the problem we know the roi we have multiple studies saying that if you invest a dollar in improving our information about underground infrastructure we make 21 dollars. we make 30 dollars. we make 33 pounds whatever i mean it, it's a no-brainer i mean most municipalities are happy if they have an roi of two or three we're talking about an roi of 20 30 i mean it's it's incredible and i think I think the awareness of the problem and the awareness of the payback from the investment is now reaching a lot of people. And so a lot of stuff is happening. I mean, for him as an example, now, Jeff, I'm going to ask you a question, but, but there's a lot of other companies you a, a that are, really, you know,
2: doing a really focused question here. Uh, I've been in the industry since 97 and I've, it's really been a tough go trying to convince people to invest money in engineering. And now, We're at a point where we're saying, wait a minute, let's also invest money in technology. What do you think is going to be that difference that's going to actually push? it? Or did you answer that by saying, because it's venture capital that's actually pushing it now, that it's actually going to adapt and pivot?
1: Yeah, I think it's the awareness. I think the awareness is there. I think the fact that everybody knows that construction productivity is our big problem. Everybody's talking about infrastructure. You put that together. And to me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's happening okay. now. When I know, when 1997, I mean, I started looking at underground infrastructure 25 years ago. You know, I mean, you'd always find a little group somewhere that was doing something about it, knew something about it. But if you started talking to somebody at a sea C-level or a you know serious government level, need? or they never heard of it. They say, what's the problem with underground stuff? I mean. What do you mean when I dig a hole, I have to call somebody? What, what's that all about? Now, that, you, know, that, you know I was talking to somebody this morning, and when you go into a utility or you go into a government or you go into a contractor and you say, listen, I've got a solution for your underground problem. In the past, they'd say, underground problem? What do you mean underground problem? Now you go in, they know what you're talking about. Every contractor knows what you're talking about. You go into a contractor from the CEO down and say, "Listen, I got a solution for your underground problem." They all know what you're talking about. You don't have to sell them on the problem; you just have to sell them on the solution. So we're past Jeff, that. Still, well, we're sorry. seeing. We're
2: past that. Option, still, with yeah. thing. Go ahead, David. <laughs> <laughs> we're both so eager to get in here. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, it's also the it's also the differences between, of the streaming of the video. <laughs> but uh, so I, w- I was going to say that. Uh, still despite all the measures and the 811 and the quality levels and all this stuff, we're still not seeing a decline in, in uh, strikes and we're still seeing, uh, uh, projects needing to relocate utilities in the middle of a project. And we're still seeing these delays and these overruns and the additional costs. And it, it, to be honest, it doesn't seem like we've found the right solution yet.
1: Okay, so let me put in the context. I'll talk about North America first. In North America, every state in the US and just about every province in Canada has what's called a one call center. The idea is that before you put a shovel in the ground, you call them up. So you have a major highway project. Um, During the design phase, you have no information about underground infrastructure. You design the thing using very good above ground surveyor information. Your surveyors go out, capture everything to centimeter accuracy. You have wonderful information about above ground. You have no information about below ground. Three days before you put a shovel in the ground or a backhoe in the ground, you call up the one call center. They come out and paint the ground. There's no yeah. liabilities. You don't know whether they're painting the right place or not painting the right place. In Ontario, we have problems with late, late locates we call them up and they don't come within three days. They come 20 days later, holds up the project. Right? So, you know, part of part of the problem is the universal solution in North America of this of one call center. And as you said, the statistics show that this one call system does not reduce underground damage. You can well, look what? over the last five years. It does not reduce. Maybe it prevents it from getting worse, but it does not improve it. I'll why are we waiting example.
0: for the um, why are we waiting for three days before we put a shovel in the ground why aren't we doing this at the design phase why isn't that happening
1: okay you've that's a great lead on because that's where colorado has really really changed the whole thing colorado back in 2017 had a major disaster firestone gas line blew up killed people flattened the neighborhood and within three years, by 2019, there was new legislation in Colorado that did two key things. One is it said before you do is during planning, up to 10% design, you have to do what's called a subsurface utility engineering survey, which means you need to know where everything is underground before you start designing something. Right? Yeah, you know, that gets right to your point. That avoids unnecessary you know, in other words, you design something not to cross over a major transmission line. You design something to avoid a transmission line. So you made you avoid major relocates, you avoid fine hitting things during construction that hold the the project up and so on. So that that was the first thing that happened in, in Colorado. Um, and that applies to all major civil engineering projects involving the public right of way, state right of way in Colorado. So this is not just a few projects. This is all projects. Basically, it's 95% of all projects. The other thing that has happened, and it's not only in Colorado, but also in Montana and a few other jurisdictions is one of the biggest problems in this sector is that after you complete construction, you, you always have to submit what are called as-builds, right? Those as builts are notoriously unreliable. They are as they are as designed as documents. And not in the first words, they, on the yeah.
0: podcast to say. Yeah. To say no, it. I'm sure I love it.
1: So those those documents have been notoriously unreliable in both in both Colorado and Montana. Now, they have to be survey grade, which means that they have to be accurately captured. They have to be stamped by a PE or PLS which means there's you know how the construction works so you have to know who you're going to sue right <laughs> if somebody's going to be sued you know they're going to do a good job because they know they're going to be liable yeah, so in both those the states the sub in both those states the as-builts now have to be stamped by so, PEPLS which means there's somebody Let's go
2: back on that you're saying that in 2012 Canada came out with their s 250 and that was the uh, as as-built criteria the as-built best practice and it's been around since 2012, right. and it just got released into 2020. Uh, they did a little update. Yep. So we have the standard in Canada. Why is it not being used? Like, it's it's really incredible. And you, from what you're saying is until it gets legislated, it's just going to be on the shelf. With, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I, I'd, I'd say if, I, if you want to, you know, so that's, you know, we have the S-250 in Canada. In the U.S., right. they haven't so, had for, those,
0: a for those who don't know, for our listeners who don't know, please uh, break down. Yes. Yeah. What is it, what is it?
1: Oh, yeah. S250 is an yeah. as-built standard, as Ophir said, it's an as-built standard, which sets standard quality standards for for as-built submissions.
2: No. Okay. And
1: it, it has different levels. Good. You know, it, it's similar to the ASCE 38 standard for under, you know, existing. Un- so there's really two standards we're talking about. In North America, we're talking about ASCE 38, which was first published in 2002 which sets basically standards for existing underground infrastructure, infrastructure. right? AS, the S-250 sets standards for newly installed or newly relocated infrastructure, right? So those two things, you have to keep those separate in your mind. In the United States, um, ASCE 38 is used uh, for existing, and they are just for the first time releasing a new standard called ASCE 75 which will be their as-built standards, except they can't call it an as-built standards because of legal restrictions, so they call it an as-constructed standard, which is actually more accurate. I mean, as-built, sort of you don't know whether it's a design document or whether it's a real, but in the United States. So now in the United States, they have ASCE-75, which is equivalent to in Canada S-250. So we have standards for newly installed, newly relocated stuff, and we have standards for existing stuff. So just so you all
2: know, the yeah. AC 38 also, with the rewrite, is also now all utilities, and it's now investiga- It's now going to be focusing on investi- investigating existing utilities,
1: regardless of if they're above or below ground. So really taking everything, writing it together. And it also sets a minimum standard of what you have to do. The ASCE 38 standard uh, was very, it was new, It was very short, it was only 20 pages long, and it basically didn't specify much. It didn't say you had to do this. It wasn't prescriptive. It didn't say, to say that you've done an ASCE 38 uh, uh, survey, SUE survey, uh, you didn't really have to do much. Some people just went out and looked at some as-built, some records and said that they'd done an ASCE. With the new standard, the ASCE 3821, it is prescriptive. It says, this is the minimum you have to do to say that you've done a Sioux survey. And that includes basically capturing the location of everything underground using remote sensing technology. Interesting. So it's it's really interesting how we work into this remote sensing
2: technology. It also gives you an update in terms of the technologies which are available. And uh, the truth is looking at technology today, I, I see a, an exponential growth in terms of uh, technology and how it's getting released and how it's coming out. Jeff, is that the IRS calling you again or the, one of the scamming IRS yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I didn't pay my taxes. Or, or
1: the uh, customer Border protection agency no calling worries, you to no yeah, send right. them a Walmart yeah, card sorry, right now. What, <laughs> I'm going to go have to take it off the hook if that keeps happening. Anyways, yeah. It's no usually worries. somebody somebody calling from yeah. India saying that the Canadian yeah. border guys are going to grab me. <laughs> there we go, technology, VOIP. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Making uh,
2: making communication. Yeah, because, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. so uh, the thing
1: that I would just add over here, which is following to up on your first on your other question is that, yes, we have to mandate these standards. We can't just say, well, yeah, here it is and take it or leave it. And in Colorado, for example, both those standards are mandated. Excellent. In other words, if you work in Colorado, you have to apply as CE 75. And you have to buy ASC. So it's not.
2: Uh, uh, I don't. shell, and not. Uh, please do. No, it's yeah. you have
1: to. And I think you know some jurisdictions in Canada. I think, for example, Infrastructure Ontario um, is also requiring these that ASC. You know, like 250 yeah. and ASC 38 have to be used on their transit projects, I believe, on their broadband projects, and I think also now on highway projects. Uh, It's absolutely
2: amazing. That that was the the BTFA and the BBFA, and there we go. You're not wanted yet, Jeff. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the uh, building uh, broadband fast track and the building transit fast track actually include the TAC guidelines, the Transportation Association of Canada guidelines uh, for P3, and that's the utility coordination, utility relocation process on a P3 project, which actually a design. uh, uh, a uh, an alternate delivery project which actually puts in there that thou shall start with uh, seed information as per ASC thirty eight and thou shall complete with
1: the yep. uh, CSA S two fifty quality as built. Now it's a, Absolutely it's
2: really yeah we
1: need more we mean we need more provincial jurisdictions doing this. Just saying if you're gonna work on a on a you know civil engineering project in this province, you have to use ASC thirty eight and S two fifty now when I was going back to the technology item uh,
2: I'll give you a great example. Back in 1992 when I was in the Israeli military, I had this great little green box and it was the Garmin or a, a Garmin GPS unit and I had 30 to 60 centimeter accuracy in 1992. Only in 2007, wow. you know, when I got out of the military and I was, uh, I was here working in utilities and working in the infrastructure, I was going, okay, where's my Garmin? And they said, no, 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 total station, start pulling those chains. <laughs> so, uh, the point being you know the links and the chains and the point being only in 2007 did that technology get released to the public you know that that it really went mainstream when gps started becoming that, right. that mainstream and that's a right. that's a huge you know that's right. a, you know what is that let's see 2002 to wow you know that's a 15 year lag now yeah. the way technology is evolving the way things are going i see things yeah. you know which we dreamed of 3 years ago now coming out and really getting pushed forward mm. How can yeah. how can we actually take all these different technologies and start using them, start applying them to our day to day investigations, our our day to day lives, to improve, you know, to improve, uh, and to improve our infrastructure mapping. If it took 15 years originally to get that initial GPS unit out, and now it's you know getting better.
1: Well, I think at this point, any construction worker can capture survey accuracy stuff with a cell phone. Interesting. Yeah, you know, with the RTK. But, I mean, anybody could do that. I mean, there's a number of companies providing that. There's a lot of companies that are already using that technology. You don't need a surveyor out there. You may want to have a surveyor reviewing what's being captured. You know, surveyors have to stay in the picture. But any construction worker on a project now can capture, centimeter, you know, survey grade accuracy for newly installed stuff, newly exposed infrastructure and whatever. I think this this locating, you know, centimeter accuracy loading is no longer a problem. Anybody could do it. I mean... You can go to Trimble, you can go to Hexagon. They all have low-cost devices that you can just take out in the field, hook up to your your cell phone, and capture you know, survey grade. At, survey grade. No, I know
2: my friends from uh, PSC Professional Surveyors Canada would have an issue you, with what you're saying here. But do, do you see that?
1: Uh, yeah. No, surveyors okay. still. I'm not okay. saying <laughs> surveyors should be cut out, but you know, they they you know their surveyors could actually be in the office reviewing the results and making sure that they conform to surveying standards and all that kind of stuff but the reality is you can't most construction projects can't afford to have a survey crew out there permanently on site waiting for somebody to expose you know something underground or to put something in the ground or to call up a survey crew to to to, to come out when they've just put something in the ground it's just not economical and i think the surveyors recognize that. So, i mean the technology is just moving you know quickly.
0: jeff i think that that also um, talking about uh, the economical perspective, I think it doesn't make sense to have as many teams in the field, like we're seeing today. Like, because because a lot of them are just doing the same thing, like we can have two projects, uh, crossing the same uh, right of way. And they'll need to do more or less the same, uh, the same work there, and, and uh, generate the, the same results. And yep. there's no reason to have two teams in the field doing the same work
1: I think you're getting into another another area you know I I tend to break this problem down into three sections one is technology for detecting things underground reality capture you know capturing new stuff that's going in the ground which is sort of what we were just talking about Mm -hmm. Um, and the other one is sharing information and I would say that probably the the thing with the biggest payback is sharing the information. In the United States, I mean the rough estimate I've heard from people in the industry is that the US spends ten billion dollars a year finding things. And it's exactly like you said, David. <laughs> you know, if I'm gonna a build a project right here this year, I call up the one call center, the guys all come out in their vans with their EM devices and whatever, tell me you know, paint the ground or whatever. If I if I do another you know, project in exactly the same area next year, the same thing will happen. Yep. They don't capture that information, they don't they they usually don't even capture it and they certainly don't share it. So this why aren't information people
0: sharing? Why why, why isn't there's that There's no happening? mechanism
1: to do it. There's no mechanism to do it. That's what, you know, is that's what's going on in the UK. That is the big thing in the UK with the National Underground Asset Register is a way of capturing this information and sharing it. So, the way it works is that, you know, the utility the utilities have records, usually derived from as built which, as I said, are unreliable, right? So, but that is the single source of truth right now. And the reason in North America that people don't use the... You know, so in North America, like I said, there's a one-call system. I call up the one-call system. I say, this is where I'm going to dig. Well, you would say, well, why don't they just send me paper records? Why don't they just send me digital records of what's there? The reason is, is they're so unreliable that that would really actually increase the amount of underground. You know Jeff, there's still jurisdictions that,
2: that do that, though, in North America. They don't tend to locate it. They, yeah. I'm sure there are. Yeah.
1: But I know, for example, I'll give you an example from Netherlands and Flanders. They have an automated online system. All you do is you go online, you draw your little rectangle or whatever it is and say, this is where I'm going to dig. And within 24 hours, you'll have all the paper, digital maps of whatever there is, they think is there. The problem is that data is unreliable. So you get this stuff quickly, but it's like fast access to bad data, right? I mean, that's really what's happening. And in North America, the system is actually, I think is is better because they send somebody out with an EM device, ground penetrating, whatever, to actually try to figure out where things are. They don't rely on the as-built, right? Because the, everybody knows the as builts are unreliable. The trouble is, it costs utilities and telecoms a lot of money to maintain these fleets of Locate vehicles, right? Or they contract it out to somebody, but they have to pay those guys. And the Locate industry in, the, in North America is huge. If you go to, you know, the big event in Phoenix every year, I'm, it's football fields of people selling things for detecting things underground or whatever. But anyhow, getting back to your original point, I think the really key to this, and this is another area where... Um, Colorado is really leading the charge is that there has to be ways of capturing this information and sharing it right? so in Colorado, if you do any work on the on the in the state right of way, whether you're a contractor, a locator, um, a network owner, operator, anybody who does any work you know has to use a single online well I call it. Single mobile plus cloud solution, which allows you to share that information with everybody else. So this information is no longer just being captured and going into pro, in, into project files down in the basement. It is now being shared with everybody who works on C dot projects. Yeah, and that to me is probably the most important advance because instead of taking ten billion dollars and tearing up the bills on a cold winter day out in the field we're capturing the you know I mean this is we're capturing the information so the next time somebody comes to that area you know and needs to know what's underground they can say well we got a database I, we know what we know what we found last hmm. time
2: interesting now I, I know this is, I'm, I'm putting on my uh, my former hat on again what about security if we're putting everything in one centralized place are we not worried about security? And the
1: conveyance of that information getting into the wrong hands. Okay, so there's two. Le- I would I would break this into two levels of security. One is cyber security, standard cyber security. you know, it's standard stuff. This is internet and this is all. And there's a you know everybody knows the government's put a lot of effort into that. But for this kind of data, I think the thing that is probably even more important, well, equally important, is data. What what I would call data protection. And that means that there are rules about who can see data, how much data they can see, and how often they can see it. And I'll give you a very specific example applying to telecoms. Telecom is a very competitive business. So telecoms are asked to share data on something like what's going on in Colorado or what's going on in the the UK with the National Underground Asset Registry. They are very leery unless there is a strong data protection policy. And I'll just give you some examples of the kinds of things they worry about. Um, if I if I'm a telecom in the UK, for example, um, I want to make sure that my competitors and sometimes other people, my competitors can't go in there and see where my network is, right? Because if I know that Vodafone is putting fiber into this area, right, then I I've got some very useful information that can tell me Boy, maybe I should go into that area or, or you know, one, one, why are they doing it? There must be something out there that's motivating them to do that. So there are there are mechanisms in, in um, online systems and newer newer will have this. protection. actually, uh, we'll say you can't look at more than 500 meters at a time of a network. Right? You can't do 3000 queries against somebody's network. It will restrict who can actually see that network. You know things like that that you know are they're 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 all part of a data protection package interesting and And how do you do
0: that jeff how do you do that when you're trying to design a highway that is 50 miles long how do you do that
1: usually the way it's done um, is you often name who can see the data right in other words you can say My competitor, Vodafone, can't see this data, but the Highways England can see this data. Yeah. It will still be restricted. It'll say okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: It is still restricted. You can't see more than fifty kil this project is fifty kilometers long. You can't see more than fifty kilometers. You can't query it multiple times. You know, there's still other things like that. But you know, you just name, you say, these are the only people who can see this data and Vodafone can't see it.
2: Jeff, I'm gonna ask you, what about all the Uh, Unregistered and undocumented utilities out there. How are we going to take care of that problem if we're talking about
0: the never ending problem? Yeah,
2: okay.
1: Okay. I know but there's a big difference when you call the one call center in North America. those guys contact specific utilities specific telecoms. Those guys come out and look for their infrastructure, right? You call up the gas company. They're not going to look for the electric infrastructure for you. They're gonna come out and find their gas infrastructure. The electric company will find its electric infrastructure. The water company will find its water and the telecoms will try to find their infrastructure. Nobody's looking for abandoned or unowned stuff. But that's where the Sioux survey you know, that has been mandated in Colorado comes in. Sioux surveys are looking for everything underground, abandoned, unowned, you, you know, gas company, water company, whatever. I mean, I, I'll give you an example of things that can happen is that you know a, a water company for example might have had a pipe or a you might have had a wastewater pipe down and they might have said well okay we abandoned it sometimes they even take it out of their gis they say it's not ours anymore it's abandoned well wow. what often happens is the gas company will come in to install a new pipe or a telecom will come in to install a new fiber and they'll say hey this is cool let's just put it down this old pipe You know, and I mean, you know, so and so on one level, you say, oh, this is abandoned, but you really have to tap it. You have to tap that thing because you don't know what somebody else has put inside it. That's the kind of problems you run into with this old infrastructure. Right. And that is that's not that's not a one. I mean, that happens frequently. The number of times you find a gas main. Or, or you find a, a fiber, go, you know, going down an old pipe is, is phenomenal. I actually have, uh, have another story
2: yeah. about that. In city of Toronto, they have their old fire suppression network downtown, and uh, you go looking downtown now, and all of a sudden, the, all those old water chambers now say AT&T, MetroNet, MFM, like they all. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. So what they did was they actually took their their fire so their old their old fire suppression system. In downtown toronto the old fire main system and just you know took it sold it to a a fiber company and
1: there you go (laughs) yeah yeah sure well i mean on one level it makes sense the 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 problem is it's got to you know somebody's got to record what is there that's the problem
2: yeah yeah i've I've even seen it done in gas mains uh, also downtown toronto i remember the old uh the, the old lp system was sold to a company called metronet and they literally ran fiber optics through the old cast iron gas mains so now, you know, a guy comes yeah. across that gas, you know, it's an abandoned gas main, starts cutting into it and goes, oh, wait a minute. We just cut a fiber. So <laughs> just uh, yeah.
1: another another real big problem here is trenchless, trenchless digging. You know, gas companies and telecoms often use trenchless digging, and that leads to a really big problem, which is called cross bores, which means they're putting a gas main down your street. It goes through your sewer lines. It might go through, I mean, you know, anything underground. They don't, you know, they can't really guide it that well. And they often don't know really where it went. So it's it's not uncommon to find a gas line going through a sewer, for example, uh, up to a house, you know, a lateral going up to a house. Um, And uh, what can happen, of course, is it can get blocked up because you've got this pipe going through a sewer pipe. Things block up. And then you call the router router guy and say hey, listen i got a blockage here he comes and grinds through and it's a gas mate. gas back backs up into the house the house blows up you yeah. know it's actually quite yeah. dangerous and this cross business is a billion dollar business Yeah, I, well i know that a lot of uh, energy companies have, uh, have realized that this
2: is a problem and they actually have their call before you clear program as well where they'll go out and actually uh, oh, yeah
1: Oh, is that right? No, yeah, I didn't know Cambridge that. Yeah. Citizen Energy, all the
2: ones who've uh, had had incidences in their network and actually a lot of them have. Now the funny thing is in North in North America is divided up into a few zones. You have the northern you have the northern states and in Canada as well, where you have a frost line. So you know you always assume that the water and sewer will be very deep. Now, because of circumstances and ge- and geography and the and actual terrain you sometimes actually might have that sewer which will be very shallow and then, you know, take a deep dive down. So, for example, elevated properties or a a property without a basement, that sewer is actually going to start off very shallow and then dive down into that main network. In the meantime, in southern southern United States, because there is no frost line, you could have sewers, you know, one to two feet down and still have a gravity system. So it's really... uh, It's really understanding where you are and understanding what the network's doing and really making sure that you're even covering, you know, covering yourself by, okay, did I call before I cleared or, you know, am am I going to, am I going to actually damage any other items, Which also comes to
1: another thing, which really I I think about all the time back in the, before you jump off that, before you jump off that, I think you've highlighted a real problem with, with the data that is being beginning to be addressed by the new Mm. standards. And that is we rarely have depth or Z for any of this infrastructure. We've got some X, Y, but we rarely have depth or Z for any of this infrastructure. And the new standards that we were talking about, 3821, 75, S250, actually start realizing that this is 3D data and that knowing how deep something is, is actually important information. It's actually not, I'm going to add on to not only
2: 3D, but it's geodetically correct. Because yes. they, you could tie something off to a, you know, a, a physical fixed object, but is that fixed object going to be there in 10 years from now? You actually have to
1: take That's it right. and tie it into your, TT, your digital terrain modeling. It's a really, really important yeah. thing. And, and in some parts in some parts of Canada, of course, with subsidence and whatever, things move. <laughs> right? So, you know, depth is actually not always a constant.
2: I was talking to an engineer in California and he said, well, because of our seismic issues, we have utilities that move as well. So that's a, you know, that's, that's a whole other issue on itself. Oh, yeah. Se- seismic areas, it can be yeah. even worse. Yeah, it could be even worse. Yeah, yeah. you know, now that we were talking about it, I, I regret because I, I, I can't recall what I was leading into. but You know, the information you give is always so vast and so interesting. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about all the different organizations you're involved in you know, to try and actually promote uh, this awareness of uh, utility infrastructure. Uh, you know, I, I, I see your blog beyond, uh, between the polls and it, I, I really love it. But what else are you doing? Because I know that you've approached me on a few conferences and so on and so forth. So what else are you doing to promote this?
1: Uh, right. Okay. So uh, let me talk about uh, Canada first. Um, at the beginning of this year, we organized what we called the Canadian Underground Forum, which was a. Uh, you were part- You participated. Ophir, You helped organize it, as you know. You really. You made a major contribution to that event. And getting.
0: Speakers. Our very own Ophir. Yeah, very. You
1: know, yeah. he was. You know, Ophir, you were just tremendous, and the speakers you were able to find. So that was their first attempt in Canada. To try to do. And it was really an international event, right? I mean, fair we had people from all the United States, from Europe, from Israel. I don't don't know why we (laughs) called it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know why we called it Canadian, because it was really an international event. And uh, I think it uh, and it was the interesting thing about it is that it was not focused on underground practitioners. It was not something that said, oh, if you buy this EM device, you can find things better. You can ground penetrating. It was focused more on a strategy of how we're going to deal with this problem. So we had people from ASCE. We had people from 4M, you know, startups like 4M. We had people from government organizations like, you know, Cabinet Office in the UK talking about how we're going to address, you know, all the things we've been talking about. So now we have a follow on for that. We were organizing a follow on for that conference it's not going to be called canadian underground forum this time it's going to be called subsurface utility mapping strategy forum so to make it clear this is not for practitioners this is not for somebody who wants to know how they can use their em device better or something like that it's for people who want to address the big problem right? it's going to be march 22nd 23rd we have a uh, on we have a uh, linkedin group um i think you just look up S-U-M-S-F, on LinkedIn, and you'll you'll find it. We have a lot of people signed up for that right now. Um, and like I said, it's going to be March 22nd, 23rd, uh, in, and it will be totally virtual. It's free for participants. So that's one thing. The other thing that's going on is uh, an initiative by the Open Geospatial um, OGF, yeah. uh, Consortium, OGC. And it's uh, called MUDDI, M U D D I, and I forgot what it's an acronym for, but something to do with underground. The U, I think the U stands for underground. Um, but it is an initiative that the OGC has under, had underway for quite a while to come up with some standards for sharing information about the underground. Um, and it, uh, the, the newer project in the UK, the National Underground Asset Register in the UK, is using this standard um and other jurisdictions like new york there's a project yeah. in new york called unum that is using this standard so there are people actually using this standard already so i think it's going to be it's not going to be one of these you know academic exercises it's going to be a standard that a lot of people will be using for sharing underground stuff so th- those are those are two of the things and there, there's other there's other things but you know and like i said i've participated in, uh, in advising what's going on in Minnesota, I've had been, I've participated with what's going on in the UK. Uh, Singapore really has a comprehensive program for dealing with the underground, not not just underground utilities, but underground um, geotechnical information, tunnels, transportation networks, all sorts of stuff. Because uh, in Singapore, there's you know they really need the underground. They have so little land that they have to use every little bit they have. And they've had a comprehensive program that they have done with the, uh, with the uh, uh, university in, in uh, Switzerland to put together a comprehensive program to deal with the underground. And they are just beginning on an implementation of what they've, what they've, uh, what they've come up with. Interesting. So, and yeah, that's a few of things. Yeah. Is there, is, is it because of their legislation,
2: legislative process that they can do that? Or is there a difference between the yeah, government yeah.
1: that, uh, No, you know, planning in Singapore is paramount. They don't just create planning documents and throw them on the shelf. They plan things and then they do interesting it's a very centralized place you know so it's it's uh, it's a little bit easier to do than maybe in other places but everybody watches singapore i mean everybody watches singapore the singapore water system is something that people have been watching for years so they you know they've given talks about what they're doing with Singapore because there's a shortage of water and they have to be careful with it and all this kind of stuff so singapore is a model i think the uk is a model and i think uh, colorado is a model but they're models for different jurisdictions. They're not doing the same thing. They're all doing something differently. What works in the UK does not work in the US. If you tried to take that newer project in the US and I mean in the UK and apply it, you know, have the federal government set up a repository for all this information in the US, it, I mean, I just I don't believe it would work. But what Colorado is doing, I think, works in, in North America, and that will be a model for a lot of states and provincial jurisdictions. And if you look at Singapore, it will be a model for certain types of countries. You know, they can to do that. But, I mean, the the grandfather of all this is Japan. Interesting. Let me give you a statistic. This is my favorite statistic. Every year in the United States, there's somewhere between 500,000 and 800,000 incidents of hitting underground infrastructure. It's like one every minute or two. Right? Somebody hits something underground. So, 500,000 to 800,000 incidents, and those are just um. the the recorded one incredible in Japan you know what the number is in 2016 the last time I had 135 I'm not leaving off zeros I'm not leaving off zeros 135 that makes me feel really bad yeah it well it shows you that you can do something about it right? interesting that's the message to me it shows you that you can do something about it. Japan in you know Tokyo if Moses went and stuck his staff in the ground in Tokyo he wouldn't just hit water or whatever. He would hit telecom, he hit water, he hit gas, he'd hit fuel lines, he'd hit everything under the sun. It would be a mess. And they had this problem, in, I think in the 83, 84, 85, they were having problems hitting things underground. So they set up what was called RODIC, which is the Road Information Center in Tokyo. It was first all in Tokyo. Um, but they basically used a big mainframe system, It required a lot of government money, but they basically put together a 2D system for recording what was under the under the streets in Tokyo and starting there they have you know involved all the stakeholders contractors utility companies road you know highway you know government road agencies everybody's involved so there is a culture of accurate as-built when you submit an as-built it's not you know a design document it's really an as-built document um, when you expose something you report it the construction guys have rules that whenever you get within 50 centimeters of something you have to use hand tools you can't use power you know all there's all sorts of things and it's a culture the whole culture works on this principle that we don't want to hit things interesting in terms of yeah. your vision
2: in terms of what you've seen what is that shining light that, which is really uh giving you a smile every day, you know, think, okay, we can go on. We're really getting better.
1: Or is there one? Well, first of all, first of all, there is first of all, awareness, the fact that a national government in the UK has deemed this important enough to spend millions of dollars on this project over a four year program. That is, it's an awareness thing. You know, I'd say Colorado is another example. I mean, that to me, you know, Colorado, uh UK, Singapore are shining examples of a level of awareness that highest levels of government, right? I mean, you know, this thing in the UK, this is a highest level of government. This is this is the cabinet office in London that is doing this project. Wow. Right? You look at Colorado, this was legislation. This was in the state legislature. This was not just a regulator in the state legislature. This was not just a regulator, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to change the rules or something like this. This required legislation in the Colorado legislature. Right? And to get the attention of legislators to spend time on passing these bills, you know, that's incredible. I, I, I'd even point at, uh you know, at uh, Ontario. You know, I mean, this you know, building transit better. The fact that they really focused on how are they going to coordinate utilities on these projects? Because they wrecked the awareness that utilities could really screw these projects up, hold them up for years, cost more. I mean, those to me are shining examples of awareness. Right? There is such a level of awareness in the highest levels of government and the highest levels of, you know, C-suite and the contractors or whatever about this problem. And that, to me, means that something will happen. Yeah, I'm going to ask you another question just in terms of,
2: we do have these best practices, and in absence of a law, a best practice would be that precedence for that lawsuit. Would that not, uh, would that not actually create a mechanism where people don't want to end up in court and saying, wait, we have these best practices, why aren't we using them? For example, like the TAC guidelines well, and all those other,
1: CSAS uh, 250, would that not be a kick yeah, well the tac guidelines the tac guidelines are fantastic yeah. i mean it basically to me it says the foundation for the future is sue surveys Yeah you know before during planning be- i think they might say up to 30% Correct. design or something like that but the fact that we go out and design these projects without knowing where anything is underground we have centimeter accuracy above ground we have no clue underground i i just find it incredible that we still do that you know and then we go relocate these things and it costs millions to relocate a major transmission line that you didn't know about you know i mean it's incredible but i mean i think there is there is really good evidence now that people are aware of the problem they are aware of the cost of the problem they are aware of the impact on the public on the workers You know, I I mean, I think the awareness now, and it's the highest levels of government and and organizations and transportation agencies and contractors. You know, this is not the little guy down in the locate group down in the utility that is aware of. And this is highest level. You can walk into a utility and say, I've got a solution for your underground problem. Or you walk into a contractor, you can go to the C-suite and say, I've got a solution for your underground problem. They will jump on it. Interesting. Ten years ago, like you said, Ophir, ten years ago. What underground problem what do you mean <laughs> underground problem no it's okay. uh
0: jeff what's your uh, biggest biggest piece of advice for the the designers at the very initial stages what do you
1: say to them get a Su survey before you even start designing anything interesting
2: and you know we're looking at all these technologies against two surveys and all those different things they are professional practice uh they're professional practice items is there anything else that you're you're taking a look at like uh really technology driven which we could do right now so we can uh, go forward with the uh, you know the beginning of our master planning and understanding what's.
1: well i i think we need more companies like 4m i mean you know when i first for, heard about 4m and they and and heard that 4m was using satellite imagery to map underground infrastructure i said oh wow where's that coming from Everybody else was doing ground-based you know they had a new EM device, they had a ground-penetrating radar device. they were using you know audio. I mean they were, there was a lot of technologies, but it was all ground-based. You had to walk along someplace. you know the biggest thing that was happening there was that you could put a ground-penetrating radar array on the back of a van or in a trailer and drag it down, capture things really quickly. But then you still had to analyze it. You know you still needed a geotechnical expert to try to figure out what was down there. And, and when I the first yeah, and boots on the ground. And that's dangerous work. You know, it is really dangerous work trying to do that stuff with a push cart in the middle of heavy traffic. And when I saw this, what 4M was doing, I thought, this is remarkable. No boots on the ground. You can do it anywhere in the in the world. Right. It can be done much more quickly than some guy walking down a, you know, a, a street. And I think we just need a lot more 4Ms. I mean, I think we need more yes, technology. Jeff, you're
0: stealing no, our sales pitch.
1: <laughs> no, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> no, the truth is, this was completely unsolicited, by the way. I did not set Jeff up for this, but really, Jeff, I... I uh, no,
1: you didn't. I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. But I, at all. I, I appreciate that. But, but can, can, no, can we serious. leverage technology
2: I, to really get up to that Sue investigation? Can We
1: are. I mean, it seems to me like every three months I see something new. You know, I've seen a company in France, for example, that has put a magnetometer on a drone. Think of that, right? I mean, this is not quite as, you know, as cool as what 4M did, but still the fact that you could send a drone down a street rather than boots on the pavement, send a drone or across a field or whatever captures things much quicker. You know, and I think it was like centimeter accuracy with this thing. I mean, it's being investigated by the uh, French uh, research agency and so on. But that's just an example. I mean, there's going to be, you know, like I said, you look at the VC capital going into this stuff right now. There's going to be a lot more. I hope there's going to be a lot more forums, you know, Skipper, which is the name of this company in, in France that is using uh, drones. There's, I, I think we're going to see a really rapid advance in detection, you know, detection, reality capture for new stuff. Which is really advanced. I mean, the fact that we, you know, that we can have uh, RTK in the field, you know, hooked up to a cell phone. I mean, that is really huge, as you highlighted, Ophir And the other thing is, going to the other part of it, which is the sharing data. That is going to require legislation, regulation, and technology. That's absolutely amazing. J- just so you know, uh, putting a mag, uh, mag-
2: putting a, uh, an EM or a, a mag- magnetometer on a uh, drone is not a new thing, and
1: that has been <laughs> no. Uh, if no you, it, yeah. it isn't a new yeah. thing but this yeah. is the this is the first time I've seen really hard mm-hmm. results showing the precision that you can get with interesting i like yeah. just said it was the yeah. French it's the French national research agency that is doing the tests on this thing and it's the reason you haven't seen skipper all over the you know marketing all over the place is because they're still validating what they're doing I know that the uh, the military's been using
2: that for years as well, so that's really interesting how again technology has been uh, you know, the built in the military yeah, the military, and then it evolves yeah. into that civilian uh, application
1: really interesting yeah you i mean you even i mean sometimes you see stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense i've seen things for example oh let's put ground penetrating radar on a, on a, on a drone i mean no there's some things you can do with it but it's not going to be used for underground un, underground infrastructure it's interesting <laughs> wow
0: jeff before uh uh before we uh wrap up I have one last question. Who do you think should be our next guest on our podcast?
1: Well, I, I would recommend that if you want to follow on this theme, that I would get somebody from Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Rob Martindale would be really a good freak. I would try to get, I would get somebody like Neil Brammel from UK to talk about you know see one of the things that you have to do we haven't talked about this at all but one of the things you have to do when you put together a shared database is you got to come up with a common data model everybody has to agree that this is the common data model you have to come up with a common symbology what does a blue line represent you have to come up with a common terminology in other words when i say span what does that mean? And Neil Bramwell would be that he did that for the whole newer project. That's, that's what he did. Um, and the other thing I would say would be Rob Van Son, uh, from Singapore. Interesting. It's funny. to say Yeah.
0: Well, we're, we're counting on some introductions.
2: It's really,
1: yeah, true. Yeah, sure, yeah. I'll know. I'm sure all those guys would love to participate in this, uh, in this, in this. It's project. really
2: funny. to say that my former colleague, Lawrence Arcan, who was, uh, one of the co-chairs of the CSAS 250 committee way back when yeah. he said it took them 10 meetings. To all agree that water was going to be blue. And they were meeting. there. No, it, 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 <laughs> they were meeting twice a I've month. I've had yeah. the same thing.
1: Uh, you know, I used to be, participate in these symbology meetings. It's amazing how much time you can spend because, you know, this engineer wants to have this. The guy who goes out in the field wants to see that. And if he doesn't see it, and, you know, utilities were very strict on their standards, right? um, for, you know, how they depicted underground stuff. And when you bring two different utilities yeah. together, You got a problem. You bring ten utilities (laughs) together, you got an even bigger problem. And I'll tell you a problem that we have in North America that the UK doesn't have. The UK has a standard map, you know, what I call standard base map, master map. It's called master map. Everybody uses it. Okay. In North America, every utility has a different base map. Interesting. So the location of street center lines are different on different utilities maps, right? You think of, now you say, okay, great. We're gonna take all this utility information. We're gonna put it on one map. Well, which map? Yeah, the pedigree.
2: Who's right? What do we do?
1: Is it MTM or is it UTM?
2: Is it local? Is it,
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's really a base map problem. It's not a projection problem. It's a fact that the, you know that you you can buy base maps from different companies in North America right I mean, you can buy them from here you can buy them from everybody and the location of a center line is different on each one of those maps huh. interesting
2: yeah. very interesting yeah
1: all right david anything else well, i have had, huh.
2: had a great hour
1: here
0: i think this was an amazing episode uh, we learned we learned so much you know we read a lot of your blogs uh, jeff uh, like every time you put one out we uh, we take an immediate deep dive uh, but I think kind of getting getting you on for 60 minutes and hearing everything you have to say, I think, was been a, a very, very, very interesting and practical at the same time uh, for our listeners. So uh, it was really, really great to have you on. Um,
2: you know what? Sorry, and, uh, I just want to ask one second. Jeff, you actually live in Ottawa, Canada, do you not? Yep. And you, you travel the world and you,
1: you always see utilities. I used to. I haven't been anywhere since January 6, 2020. Right.
2: <laughs> well, well, that being said, do you have that problem that anywhere you go in the world, when you used to travel, you look at utilities, you look up. Oh wait, there's a poll. Oh wait, there's a survey marker. Like, do you have that? Do you have that? Uh, that issue? Because personally, well, yeah, like, I,
1: I, like I said, over the years, uh, for 25 years, I've been worrying about underground stuff, and everywhere I went, whether it was Malaysia or Japan or in the, uh, or whatever, I'd try to find somebody who knew something about underground. I usually could find somebody, some small group that was doing something, you know, and I put together a white paper with a Japanese colleague of mine, maybe a year or two two ago, where I tried to put a compendium and I had 25 or 30, you know, things from around the world of what people were doing. They were all different. And I don't think, I think a number of them don't exist any longer. (laughs) But obviously, people had recognized this problem and were trying to do something about it, but it hadn't percolated to upper levels of government or upper levels of contractors. It was a very specialized little group that knew something about it. You know, I mean, it's quite remarkable. I was actually talking that, you know, about you, Jeff. happened since then? Do you then.
2: have that recognition? Like when you're walking in uh, uh, England, for example, do you look down and look at the valves and mm-hmm. try and... I avoid construction sites anywhere in the world.
1: (laughs) I don't want to be blown up like Merrimack or Colorado or whatever. I mean, you know what? It's like that. I mean, I would, you know, consciously avoid a construction site if I know that they're just going to start digging.
2: I'm actually drawn to them. I always want to look and peek and see how the utilities you know what what, what do they look like, you know, what their configurations. It's it's really amazing. Well, I hope they solve this problem before you get blown up. Feel uh,
0: <laughs> in the face of danger. Uh,
2: <laughs> I, I've been through that before. I don't
1: need that again. But yeah, that's for another yeah. conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. All right, perfect. Anyway. Anyhow, I, you know, David, I want to thank you very much for having me on this. thing mean, No, any, it's any, been a pleasure. Any anything we can do to get the word out on this, I think is yeah. really important. Fantastic.
0: Oh, we'll have you on for a second uh, yeah, second yeah. episode.
1: Great! I look forward Perfect. to it. All right. Okay. okay. Well, Jeff,
0: thank you so thank
1: much. You. Thank you.